Hello and welcome to another edition of The One Team We Agree On. I'm Jillian. And I'm Kyle. How are you doing today? Fantastic. And we're live from L.A. with our good friend Todd Lewis here at the Free Kick. Todd, how are you doing this morning? Doing great. Excited for day two now of the convention. Yes, and um, we have somebody on right now that is uh, um, a sports psychologist who I'm a big fan of. Listen to his uh, podcast, Sports Psych, for many years now, and um, also is a best-selling author four times, I believe, four-time bestseller, and um, founder of the Dan Abrams Soccer Academy, Mr. Dan Abrams. How are you doing today? I am delighted and honored to be speaking with you. I've met my one fan, so uh, <laughs> I've been longing to meet that person, so thank you very much for inviting me on. No problem. Thanks for coming on. So, um, just real curious, um, how did you go from golf, uh, playing golf P and PGA, to sports psychology? Like, how? Mm. what was that transition like? Mm. Uh, well... Uh, how did I go from golf to, to, to sports psychology? Uh, largely because I was a very bad professional golfer. <laughs> I didn't win any money whatsoever. Um, and in part, I suppose that does uh, come down to a lack of talent, for starters. However, I had probably had enough ability to be able to win more money and have more fun. Um, but what massively held me back was the thoughts that I was experiencing, the emotions that I was unable to manage on the golf course. Um, I didn't really know how to build my confidence when perhaps I wasn't playing so well, didn't practice very effectively, all those kinds of things that we think about when we think about sports psychology. So I saw a few sports psychologists myself, uh, it interested me at that time, and then when I started to coach golf, um, I became even more interested in psychology, so I went to university, did a degree in psychology, a master's in sports psychology, a whole bunch of supervision over a number of years, um, and then 18 years ago, I became a, a fully qualified and registered sports psychologist. So that was, that was the transition. Right. What would you say was the worst part of your golf game? Because, I mean, you're right, I mean, it's a fun game to play, but it's all up here in your head, and it's like, I cannot hit my irons to save my life, so I'm okay. like, I don't even want to play. We'll have to look at your swing after this. Um, uh, I think all round, to be honest, there, there wasn't anything that stood out, but it was very much, when I played under pressure, I would walk onto the first tee, and I would be intimidated by the person or the people I was playing with. I'd look at their swings and think they were so much better than me. Um, I'd look in front of me on the, you know, down the first fairway and think there's no chance I can hit that first ferry, irrespective of how much I'd practiced. I'd spent sort of eight hours a day practicing, stood on the first day and thought, this is going left, this is going right. So it was those kind of things. So it was more the, the thinking, the feelings, those stood out in terms of what held me back. So um, what got you interested in covering soccer? Right. Yeah, I... I <clears throat> Look, as a sports psychologist, you work across all sports. You really do. You're, you're, you're blessed with this opportunity to, 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 to go into lots of different environments, lots of different sports, and, and, and experience lots of different contexts. But I always felt when I first started as a sports psychologist, I mean, obviously I knew golf like the back of my hat, right? Mm -hmm. So I thought, oh, well, I really wanted to specialize in another sport. Because as a golfer, Sometimes I listened to sports psychologists speak and I kind of thought, oh, do you really get my environment and the demands of my game and the language that I speak? And probably that's, 
you know, probably um, I, I should have been more open-minded. But I just felt it would be important for me to, yes, work across all sports, but really specialise in, in specific sports. So I started to specialise in soccer. Uh, I started in non-league in England. I mean, football, soccer in England is absolutely ginormous. In the UK, it's ginormous. So you get the opportunity to work in non-league, so kind of like the amateur game, and um, I learned the language of the game and the specific challenges that players face, and, and it snowballed from there. So, but I've really, 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 whilst working across all sports, really tried to stick with a couple of sports that I know so well. That's, that's wonderful. And when we look across the landscape of sports, what are the, like three things that you see that are affecting especially young athletes today compared to 10 years ago and what are ways that if there's never when we talk when i think anyway there's never a quick fix but what are three things that athletes can do now to help their themselves mentally you know because yeah great great conversation i mean look i i think that I, I'm not a big believer that much has changed in the last decade. Um, so I, I think the same challenges remain. Um, what 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 things can can athletes do? Um, you know, first and foremost, get on the, get on the internet and get on YouTube and start start uh, searching for um, mental skills, mental techniques. I think that's a really impactful thing that you can do. Start becoming a student, becoming a student of the mental side of the game, because when you become a student of the mental side of the game, you start to put it first in practice and you start to put it first in competition which you need to do the second thing draw from that some very simple techniques or tools can i give you a simple technique for, yeah. your, for your listeners so i have i would say my number one technique is something i call a game face a game face um, if you speak to a, an academic sports psychologist they'd say well this is about individual zones of optimal functioning i just call it a game face right uh, and what a game face is, is it's your competitive personality or persona. It's your optimal mental state. It's like a behavioral blueprint for how you want to act, who you want to be and do, and what you want to do on, on, on the pitch or on the course or the court. So to create a game face, I tap into players' memory and imagination. Memory and imagination. Memory and imagination are really important in psychology. And for coaches listening, in mem memory and imagination could be very, very powerful. Memory. Tell me about your, your best game or your best race or your best session in the gym. Tell me about that. Draw on memory. Draw on moments of success. Imagination. Tell me about a dream game. Think about a dream game or a dream moment in, you know, in a race. When you get people to tap into their memory and imagination, they start, you know, they start to think about themselves at the best. They start to think about, you know, a dream game. That's very powerful. Then try to get them, try to break that down into some action-based words: alert, alive, lively, relentless, focused, upbeat, dominant, cool, calm, relaxed. Those kind of action words. Action words are really powerful because people can enact, act, be, and do those action words. So if a player says to me, well, when I'm at my best, and they're kind of thinking about it, and they, they, they think, okay, when I'm at my best, I'm dominant and relentless, dominant and relentless. I know, now I know, I now know there's a couple of words that I can get them to think about all the time that opens up great pictures, that, that drives great feelings through their body, dominant and relentless. So at the moment, I've got a very famous soccer player that I, I work with. Unfortunately, I can't mention his name. He's, he is happy, he's world famous. 
He's top 20 in the world, if you like, in soccer. And he has a game face of dominant and relentless. And every single day, he takes time to think about being dominant, relentless on the pitch. Every action, every motion, every movement. If he makes a mistake, dominant, relentless. Gives the ball away, dominant, relentless. Goes a goal down, dominant, relentless. Opposition are playing very well, dominant, relentless. Cross goes into Rosie, dominant, relentless. He's picturing this. He's creating an inner story, an inner narrative about this every single day. And that helps him when he gets out there under pressure to take charge of himself, to take control of himself, to dominate his mindset, to own his mindset. He's a human being. He has unhelpful thoughts, emotions, feelings, but he can turn his attention away from those unhelpful thoughts, emotions, feelings by focusing his attention onto being dominant and relentless. It's something that's specific and controllable, and it's something that he can do every single time. That's his game face, and I have players with all kinds of different game faces. You can, you can draw on a model player. So I worked with a member of the US women's national squad for a little bit, and she had a game face of dominant focus. Again, it was a dominant focused Busquets. Busquets, if you don't know him, was a very famous Spanish uh, midfielder for Barcelona, uh, Sergio Busquets. And um, this player said to me, Dan, when I think about the kind of player I want to be, Sergio Busquets is the kind of player I want to draw upon. And she liked the two words dominant and focused. So she becomes, when she walks onto the pitch, dominant, focused, biscuits. And that's a wonderful pictorial metaphor. If we would do a slight, slight deep dive here, what we know from science, and this science was done in, in the 70s, is that 70% of our language is metaphorical, right? Our human brain loves metaphors. Dominant focus Busquets is a wonderful metaphor that somebody can, this player can draw on. I have other players who use animals, so like a lion or a leopard or a cheetah, a concept if you like. So I have a player at the moment who tries to be positive upbeat lion, positive upbeat lion. I'm in charge, I'm in control, I'm lion, I'm the king of the, the pitch out there, dominant, dominant focus lion or whatever, positive upbeat lion. So you can play with language, you can play with words, you can play with metaphors, a game face. I recommend every single player in any sport can use a game face. That's, that is wonderful, wonderful advice. Um, and that's, yeah, that's fascinating. And how, that can certainly be applied to all sports because, as we've said, you know, we're swim coaches. Yeah. And that's huge. I mean, swimming is so mental, too. So okay. that is huge. And um, speaking of, you know, with academics and all the training, everything we do, um, how can coaches and parents and associations help support these young growing athletes and avoid things like burnout? Because that's something we mm. see a lot. Especially mental burnout. Yeah. You know what, it's such a good, it's such a good question. And um, at the moment in sports psychology, a very important term that is filtering through is something called a psychologically informed environment. A psychologically informed environment. Within sports psychology now, we are urging coaches, urging sporting organizations to deliver on a psychologically informed environment. Think about as as swim coaches, your coaching practice being psychologically informed. Now, psychologically informed environments, what that environment is, 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 is one that takes into account the thoughts, feelings, personalities, and experiences of the players, the people that you coach. So it's always thinking, when you're doing your session design as a swim coach, when you're thinking about the experiences that they want to have in the pool, for example, within your training, when you're thinking about the technical instruction that you're delivering, you're always considering the thoughts, 
the feelings, the experiences and the personalities of the people that you're coaching. That's absolutely critical. So when we think about that, what we know, especially for performers, high performers who want to do well, there is a tendency, so let's come to the burnout question here, there is a tendency for them to overtrain to think too much about their sport, to be constantly engaged in some kind of stress and anxiety as a consequence of their ambition. High performance can very much be paradoxical. The more I think about it, the more stressed I become, the more anxious I make myself. And so much of my job I found, especially at the very highest level, at the um, developing elite level and the elite level, is actually trying to help performers in any sport practice more effectively get the most from their practice in their training sessions and then step away do their gym work spend a little bit time uh, I, I call it one percent time one percent of your time is like of your day sorry is about 15 minutes it's like 16 minutes and 20 seconds but let's call it 15 minutes right I want I want those competitors to think to picture themselves um, engaging in their sport for 15, 20 minutes per day. Train, practice, and then get away from your sport. Move away. Have, ideally have multiple identities. Study, work, whatever, whatever it is you do, find time to get away. I think that's such an important part of a psychologically informed environment and psychologically informed practice is making sure that your people, your players, your competitors, your participants are practicing effectively, are doing the work, but then getting away from the sport, which tends to drive against the pervading narrative around you've got to grind, you've got to be doing it all the time, no days off and that stuff. And look, there is a, of course, if you want to do well, you've got to work hard. I'm not denying that. Of course, you're going to have to put it first when maybe other things come in that you want to do and you've got to go, no, I've got to, it's not sacrifice, I've just got to, I've got to choose to do my sport first. But that doesn't mean that we want to do it to the point of ill-being, ill mental health, and to the, and to the actual detriment of our performance. That is excellent, excellent. Is that anything to add? So, uh, Dan, uh, what you got coming up that you can share with our listeners? Anything, any projects, anything such as that? Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, projects are always ongoing. So um, you kindly mentioned my podcast at the beginning of the show. It's the Sports Psych Show. We do a deep dive um, on sports psychology on it, where I speak to academics and we try to bring alive and demystify the academic side of sports psychology for, for coaches and for players and for anybody interested. So there's that. Um, I've always got that going on. I, I write every day on LinkedIn. If people want to follow me, just, just find Dan Abrahams. Facebook as well. Um, and I'm writing every day on Twitter and our other social media accounts. I think about this stuff 24-7 far too much. My wife despairs. So uh, that, that's me and that's what I'm doing. And um, I, I hope to see everybody um, uh, on social media. Well, we really thank you uh, for coming on here and talking a little bit. This has been very enlightening. And... Um that's all the time we have for this episode of One Team We Agree On. Um, we'll be back here soon with additional guests. And uh, Jillian? And if you don't already follow us, you can find us at TOTWAG on, on Twitter and at the One Team We Agree On on Instagram and Facebook and as well on YouTube. And, and until next time, I'm Kyle. I'm Jillian. And we're live from L.A.